0: Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Hulu. Did you know that Hulu has live sports? Watch your favorite teams and the biggest games all season with no cable or satellite subscription required. Get over 60 live and on-demand channels, tons of shows and movies, and watch on the go on your favorite devices with Hulu. Live TV plan required. Restrictions apply. Learn more at Hulu.com. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Navy Federal. Navy Federal is proud to serve over 8 million members and is open to active duty military, the DOD, veterans, and their family members. Receive a lifetime of membership benefits like a credit card APR average that is 4% lower than the industry's member-only exclusive rates and more. Visit NavyFederal.org slash watch for more information Call one 842 6328 or download the Navy Federal Credit Union app today. Message and data rates may apply. Visit NavyFederal.org for more information. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello, and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com. And joining me in the studio today, this podcast's original angel... Allison Herman. Hello, Chris. How are you doing, Allison?
1: <laughs> I'm good. I feel like I've been, maybe maybe I had this conversation with you in another dimension and I just can't remember. Who knows?
0: It. <laughs> we will be talking about, I think, let's put it at the first like two or three episodes of the OA. Cause okay. I, haven't, I haven't finished it. We'll be talking a little bit about the OA later in the episode. We'll talk a little bit about this new ABC sitcom called Bless This Mess, mm-hmm. uh, starring Lake Bell from Liz Merriweather, who did The New Girl. And we'll hit Killing Eve and maybe some Throne stuff. Just wanted to kind of take a spin through the channels with Allison. But first, I wanted to have a conversation. I guess this is like loosely like when Kai and I talk about this, it's basically streaming wars. It's like we're just kind of talking about the the ups and downs of of the various streaming platforms and how they position themselves, both in the marketplace but in our lives. And I was having these conversations over the last couple of like 10 days ever since Disney got announced, Disney Plus got announced. Not only because it was a notable price point, what they were put there, they were initially going to probably market it at $7, although I would imagine you're going to be able to bundle it with Hulu and ESPN Plus, and that will probably take it up, if not too past uh, what Netflix currently is, which hovers around 15 bucks. Yeah, I would imagine the bundle would
1: definitely be more.
0: Yeah. But I was having this conversation with Fantasy the other day, and it kind of got me thinking about this weird thing with these emerging behemoths, because you could take a look at, like, Amazon to some extent, but certainly Netflix, certainly Disney Plus— Probably Apple, and you start to you can kind of like start to put them in the place of where the networks were when I was a kid. You know what I mean? Where CBS, NBC, and ABC were when I was a kid. I didn't really ever have like an emotional attachment to networks, although they did work to make you feel that way, right? Like they did. NBC was a certain kind of network. CBS was a certain kind of network. But I was thinking about Disney specifically because quite in the opposite of where Netflix was when it launched, and it was essentially like a DVD service that then started dipping its toe into original content and had some stuff that you could catch up on from other networks. It took a while for them to find any shows that they were making that really caught on or became part of the consciousness. Disney's not going to have that problem in a weird way because Disney has 80 years of stuff that people already have this emotional attachment to. Snow White, Star Wars, Marvel movies, Pixar movies, what have you.
1: Yeah, it's basically like it's holding your imagination hostage almost or specifically in the conversations i've heard mostly it's like your kids imagination yeah. it's like i need like my kid is going to want to see cars or moana or the next marvel movie or whatever and so like it's not even a matter of will i subscribe to this it's like will i subscribe to this or will i subscribe to the mega hulu bundle
0: yes right and that was kind of where i was getting to where it was like they've created a relationship before the service is even been launched they've created a kind of curiosity on people like uh, my part where i'm like i just definitely would probably pay seven bucks a month just to see what the mandalorian is like outside of whether or not like that's it that's you can see that and then there's also like like you're saying there's going to be families who want to have the disney children's library available they're going to be people who i think it's very savvy that they waited to the extent that they did wait i mean I know they had to buy mlb advanced tech and create all the back-end stuff that they wanted to create for it. But even the Marvel movies are now like 10 years in with a proven track record that they make stuff that some people do return to over and over again.
1: Yeah, or even just the idea of being like, just to start, we're going to have 22 of the highest grossing movies that have ever existed Right, is quite the opening sell.
0: Yeah, and I was sort of curious about all of this in relationship to Netflix because Disney's being sort of set up as a as a Netflix killer I don't necessarily think it will be that I do think that Netflix has uh that there's there's going to be multiple streaming services available for people's dollars although Netflix's proposition is such that they have to constantly be growing and adding subscribers to their base to make up for the amount of money that they're spending on content and whatever else they spend it on but Netflix it seems like the emotional dependency if you want to call it that that you have one would have with Netflix is almost more about the experience of watching Netflix than it is any one show on Netflix.
1: Absolutely. I mean... I remember we talked a little bit about this when we were talking specifically about their Oscar campaign for Roma. And I remember looking at that and thinking it was really interesting compared to their TV strategy because their Oscar campaign was like, we believe in our tours and like specifically this movie. Mm-hmm. And TV, it's just like, we're Netflix, we have everything. Yeah. Like they didn't really necessarily have any of the most nominated shows. It's just like they literally have so many shows that hit so many different niches that like they just owned the board. And I do think in the minds, especially of people my age, it's not even an emotional attachment. It's just a utility. It's just like, well, Netflix is just like a recurring monthly charge that I have because I know it'll have something that is of interest to me. And I know it offers the social aspect where like it's of interest to me and people I know will also be experiencing it
0: and I can talk to them about it. Right. And so you and I have talked before about whether you want to call it ease of use or it's been sort of, we've just gotten used to it, the fact that you feel like people will give Netflix shows way more of a shot... Or at least, like, oh, it was on the front page of Netflix, so I started watching it, regardless of its critical reception, regardless of its pedigree, regardless of whether it's any good or not.
1: I mean, we're about to talk about the OA. Like, can you imagine, like, even HBO, but, like, NBC, any, like, sci-fi, just anything that is not, like, we have hundreds of millions of people just idly browsing our service, being like, hello, watch the show with the telepathic octopus. Yes, (laughs) it's
0: absolutely the, the case, and I think that that is a weirdly to me that's weirdly part of the value of Netflix is that like somehow even though we all talk about oh, it's just like this algorithm that governs like what gets cho- chosen to keep they keep on or what they cancel or what gets promoted i do feel like strangely it's not out of benevolence but like strange stuff happens on Netflix in a way that i wonder whether that will ever happen on hulu or happen on amazon or happen on apple or happen on disney because they have so many innings to fill they have so many hours to fill now that they could all, want, that this could all wind up changing if Netflix decides to become a lot more circumspect about how much money they're spending on original programming. Um, I do wonder, I mean, Kaya said something to me the other day, our producer Kaya. She was like, I think you made mention of like going home and you were like, yeah, I just throw on the office. And then like if I'm cleaning my house, like the, the office will just be on in the background, which is exactly what I used to do when I would go home and just turn ESPN on. I would have it on basically to hear another voice in the house while I like made dinner or something like that. That's not going to be the experience that we have with Disney, but I wonder whether or not that experience is still as valuable as any other.
1: No, I think it's valuable. And actually like another service that I think... Disney will maybe work in complement with now that they own so much of it is Hulu. Yeah. I was listening to KCRW's The Business, which is a really great podcast to listen to if you want to understand this stuff. But they were sort of talking about the way Disney is positioning it is that Disney Plus is going to be <laughs> a little more of a family play, like we mentioned. It's yeah. got a lot of stuff that like appeals to kids and appeals to f- parents watching with their kids, whereas Hulu is a little bit more of an adult thing. But I think something that Hulu has very quietly been both competing with Netflix in and like maybe even doing better in as, because they've, up until this point, been like we're the one that's owned by the broadcast networks. They have amazing archives of shows like Insane. Thirty Rock, like, like yeah, Golden Girls.
0: Golden yeah. Girls is like basically my wife's version of the way people watch The Office. Like when she's just like, I just need a nightlight on. She watches Golden Girls.
1: Yeah, Seinfeld. Yeah. It's just the show that feels, or it's the the service that feels the most like it's replacing traditional TV in that sense. Mm-hmm. And I do think it's very very valuable for something like Disney to have that. And part of that is because I just know that it gives me a lot of bang for my buck. And so it's definitely, like, quiet. I think it's less flashy than something like Netflix, which just, especially from here on out, as they're losing archives, own so much. Sure, It's kind of interesting to have the one that's like, okay, this is where I get, like, my passport to the past of network TV.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Almost. I mean, and that's actually something that I wonder whether or not we'll, like... It, there is a little bit more of a historical archive like you're saying in Hulu where it's like with Netflix, it's kind of a little bit more flattened out and it's been replaced largely with their own original content. The thing that strangely, I wonder whether the two most popular shows on Netflix are The Office and Friends. You know, I mean, I know that Narcos and I know The Stranger Things and I know they have a lot of like very successful shows at least by their own metrics. But I wonder what would happen once presumably Warner Streaming, whatever that comes yeah. out, would take Friends back and if... if uh, if the office ever reverts to an NBC Universal Comcast, uh,
1: I mean, they literally just announced. I don't know if you saw this. The marquee offering of NBC Universal's like to be titled streaming service, which is launching in 2020, is a adaptation of Brave New World starring Alden Ehrenreich. Yeah, which is just the most. It totally feels like variety Mad Libs to me. Yes, of course, yeah and it's also just like I don't even know if that's the selling point of that streaming service. I'm not I'm not like, "Oh, I can't wait to see what original content the mighty NBC Universal is going to bankroll for me" in the same way that I am with like Apple, where I'm just like, "Okay, like Apple can literally just like set a Crate of Benjamins on fire, and it's just like a business expense. you know, like I can't wait to see like what that results in. NBCU, I think, is going to be tougher, and I would not be surprised if their leading cell alongside newer stuff was like, oh, and by the way, we also have the office for you to put on while you're cleaning your house. Yeah, I
0: mean, that that, that's going to be the curious thing. I've been trying. I mean, I was I read a great article on strategy by Ben Thompson about the introduction of Disney Plus, and and the possible bundling of that with Hulu and the possible bundling of that with ESPN Plus and how that sort of creates like a pretty close approximation to what it's like to have cable television, you know, because you would have your sports, you would have te- regular tele, quote unquote, regular television, and then you would have these Disney products. And he kind of went into detail about how you have to understand Disney as this incredible wheel of you know, constant, it's almost like one of those, um, water wheels that it's like almost generating energy by doing that. And that stuff is all integrated from Disneyland to the merchandise to the music and the music that's used in different parts of it. And that it's like constantly buzzing revenue because it's like keeping you inside of it. But then on the other hand, something like Netflix is a little bit more of a passive thing. And Netflix is kind of just offering a ton of stuff that isn't necessarily like a brand, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, can you imagine a Netflix theme park? Stranger (laughs) Things, right?
0: (laughs) So there would be like Key West World for, uh, for, for. Bloodline, right? Yeah, so I was about
1: to be like, there could be like a themed B&B for Bloodline, yeah. go, go see the Hollywood sign from BoJack. You could go to the
0: Women's Correctional Facility <laughs> for Orange, take a tour of the, the Oval, Oval Office, Office with Claire. House of
1: Cards, yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. and then I think, I think that like the thing is, is that they do do like Stranger Things activations at like Universal Studios and stuff like that for ha- Halloween. I mean, that would actually be pretty funny, but I don't think anyone ever charts it back to Netflix the way people chart it back to Disney even with sub-brands as powerful as Marvel, Star yeah. Wars, and Pixar.
1: Well, I think because Netflix's whole thing is like we're not even a brand. We're just like a totality within which some brands can exist. Yeah. And like that works in their favor in a lot of ways but it also doesn't... It means that people aren't going to be like holy shit, there's a Netflix plus.
0: <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Let me give it all my money. So they, they, they fell a little short if I'm reading the sort of the, the statistics right here, I think globally fell a little short of uh, new customers than they thought they would. Uh, recently, it was like they added 5 million, and uh, Wall Street forecasted like 6.09 and uh, the company blames that slowdown on pricier offerings because they're raising prices in different different parts of the world. And it is truly like a global service. That's the thing I think we tend to like look at it through this lens of like, well, what shows are you putting on here in America? And it, uh, they do really think about like what's who is watching this in Brazil and how can we better service them. But that being said, like I think once we get to November and December and the reason why I'm so fascinated by this is I think that the these companies are going to have to keep articulating what it is they do for us and what purpose they serve in our lives. Apple, I thought, kind of botched their rollout, or at least were not that impressive with it. But I do understand what they're trying to do, which is that they're trying to get into, Apple is integrated into every single part of your life. Your phone, the way you listen on AirPods, the way you pay for stuff, the games you play, the television you watch, all of it is running through apple machinery. Does that make sense? Totally. And then you've got Disney, which I think is like almost this weird like what if you only needed one brand? What if you did, there didn't need to be this like multiplicity of like corporate voices in your life and you could find everything you needed in this one under one umbrella. Is that scary to you?
1: Kind of. I mean, it's weird. Like, I was listening to that podcast, and someone just offhandedly mentioned the idea of FX and the fact that Disney technically owns it now. Yeah, and I was like, oh yeah, like FX shows just aren't really available on streaming because Landgraf has been so reticent of Netflix. Like, is is this just going to be?
0: Well, they have their highly- own. They have their own. Uh, app, Yeah, the they have F- an app, but yeah, that's yeah. sort of
1: like if you already have box, oh, sure. yeah. it's not it's not the same like, oh, I'll pay an extra $7 a month and I can stream like all of the Americans. Yeah. And it's just like the idea that, you know, what is arguably right now the premier prestige television network, which does not make their offerings like super accessible to the non-cable having public the idea that, like, the fate of that entire archive is just, like, a absent-minded aside. Yeah. Or even just, like, you know, in my weird niche TV critic existence, uh, Disney just changed its TV press site to just be Walt Disney Television, so it's just a gi- And you pull it up, and it's just a panel of, like, freeform... FXX, Fox, it just every brand, and really? it's just it's like stunning to look at. It's like twelve different logos. That five years ago, we're so,
0: we pretty separate, or right? it felt pretty. Yeah, separate. We're separate. And, yeah, we're separate, and and like
1: so far, they're just kind of like links to pre-existing websites. But it's just like, oh right, like it's it's done. Yeah, this is this is happening.
0: So the other thing that I really want to keep an eye on over the coming months is whether or not this phenomenon that I've been trying to like articulate to myself keeps happening, which is essentially that the amount of new stuff required by these new platforms to fill up libraries to have a significant amount of an offering for people to pay extra money or make the choice that this is going to be the, the televised entertainment platform that they use is going to be such that basically we're always trapped in this hamster wheel of the new. Because one thing that I've noticed recently is that when like me, Andy and I used to do this podcast back at Grantland even... And there was like that was sort of like, quote, quote unquote, peak TV era. But one thing that you would always see is like, if you just kept evangelizing for certain things, there was a good chance that people would check out the Americans eventually. You yeah. know what I mean? Maybe not on like a massive, massive, massive amount, but people would have the time to say like, okay, well, there's only like three things on now. I'll go back eight months and catch up with Breaking Bad on Netflix or whatever. But if you're constantly pumping five to 10 new shows every week, I wonder if anyone's ever going to get to go see Patriot or go see Berlin Station or go see any of the shows that are like two years old or like three years old. And this brings me all the way around to HBO because I get really interested in the idea of like, is, are people going to go back and watch Six Feet Under the way that they watch The Office? I don't think so.
1: Although it's funny, I have noticed, this is definitely like a very isolated anecdotal Twitter thing, but The Sopranos has like started to become that in this weird way where like I see people doing it as like a comfort watch where it's like, okay, now that I know all the stuff that happens and I know all the weighty psychological things it's trying to say about, you know, how can people change and blah, 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 I can just like... Go laugh at the scene with Polly Walnuts in it and just revisit it because it's become this like weird, shared, classical touchstone that's also like kind of dated in a funny way now.
0: But do you find that more and more people, like just in your conversations, are less likely to say, Oh, I'll go catch up on The Expanse now so that I can like the experience that actually was pretty normal for Game of Thrones, which is around the first or second season, you saw a lot of people like, I binged it, I'm ready for season three that seems like it's going to be increasingly rare as we go forward because of the amount of new stuff that's getting promoted. And if it's all getting promoted on these services, like, I don't know what happens to libraries.
1: Oh, 100%. And it's also just like, I find that I have to catch people at very specific times. It's like just as they're getting to the end of whatever they're watching, that's when I can slide in and be like, check this out. But I have a very limited window in which to like work my recommendation magic because people are always occupied with
0: something. Yeah. Yeah. To say nothing of everything else that's happening in the world. So I— it's very interesting to think about where this stuff is all going. I was I, I was just fascinated. I was thinking about that thing that Kaya said where she was like, I turn on The Office or I turn on Vanderpump and like have it on in the background. And that is like a major way that people, I that's a major way that lots of people take in television, as is I've decided to binge four seasons of Saul before five or whatever. Mm-hmm. So it'll be curious to see how all that stuff and our behaviors change uh, as, as these services finally start to pop up. I mean, I think that I would imagine Apple would get to market before Disney, but... I I think they're both set
1: to be in the fall, right? Like, the Mandalorian is November, November. and then Apple has said, like, sometime in autumn. And also, We'll let you know. (laughs) We'll let you know, and also it's, like, not clear at all, like, how many they're launching with, Yeah, or... I don't know. It's so weird that they had this whole launch event, but they didn't actually, like, announce anything. Were
0: you surprised at all to hear that it sounds like at least the Mandalorian, but I would imagine most of Disney's original programming is going to be week to week and not in a binge. Oh, I didn't catch
1: that, but yeah. it's honestly kind of exciting. Yeah, I've, I would love to have a full week to process Werner Hertz <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> working is magic. Yeah, me too, me too. Okay, so let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Uh, and when we come back, Alice and I are going to kind of run through a bunch of shows that we've both been watching uh, and give our thoughts. Okay, we'll be right back. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Philo. Say goodbye to expensive TV bills and horrible customer service with Philo. Philo is a new way to watch all the TV you love. Philo is the cheapest way to watch over 50 of your favorite channels like Discovery, Science Channel, HGTV, Food Network, AMC, VH1, and more. Never miss a minute of The Daily Show. Catch SpongeBob and Paw Patrol for the kids, plus tons of classic shows and movies. Enjoy live and on-demand TV, plus unlimited recording for only $20 a month. And never miss a minute of The Show. Shows you love. Philo is great for watching TV from your TV, phone, or computer whenever you want. There's never been a better deal on cord-free, commitment-free, hassle-free TV. Philo is available on Roku, iOS, Fire TV, Android TV, and Apple TV. Start your free trial. Visit Philo.tv/slash the watch. That's P-H-I-L-O.tv slash the watch. And if you go now, you'll get 15% off the first month. Allison, we're back, and I guess one of the reasons why I'm feeling so like off edge and reflective about all this stuff is because everything that we were sort of saying about Game of Thrones being the last monoculture show, I almost was like, "Oh, are we making too big of a deal about that?" No, no, we're, we're, we're really not. not. You could say what you will about like whether the ringer is like overdoing it, but I can tell you firsthand, like we don't find that to be the case. Like people are actually legitimately like. It's it's throne season. for Yeah, the next we six have weeks. yet to
1: find the limit of people's demand for talking about this show. Yeah, and I
0: even conversationally, even even with a group, with the caveat that yes, we are an obsessed group of people when it comes to this show. Conversationally, it's coming up all the time. Like, oh,
1: it was remarkable. I mean, I came into the office on Monday and. It was like a true water cooler moment. Like, obviously, yes, our office is like uniquely focused on the show. But even with people who weren't professionally covering it, I had like five separate conversations about the premiere and how we feel the season is going and like how we're feeling now that it's back. And just I don't have that experience about any other show.
0: Anything. Yeah. And I I think that it was something around... 17 million live, I think. And then we don't know. It
1: was the biggest episode in HBO's history. Yeah. Like I that's- mean,
0: <laughs> it's it's like the number is not mash numbers, but it's pretty huge. It's 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 honestly eye-watering. What did you think of the actual episode? Because I think I read your piece. The first piece you wrote was like, it's getting back to basics. It's got it went back to like what made Game of Thrones really good in the first place in a lot of ways. And and also in sort of you know, the funny kind of like true bloody aspects of, you know, what we kind of know HBO is capable of. But what did you actually think of it as a game of, like as an episode of television?
1: I enjoyed it. I mean, I think... One of the things that had and did well that last season was so lacking in was the kind of human scale, character to character moments that actually drew on the dynamics between these people that we've seen develop over literal years, which is what television does best. Like, that's what I can get out of this medium that I can't get out of a two hour movie. And I thought it was extremely telling and very effective that they opened with Maisie Williams. And just watching her face react to yeah. seeing these three men who have been incredibly significant in her character's life. And it's literally wordless, and it carries so much emotional impact just to watch her process like the Hound riding past her as part of technically her allied party. Um, watching this brother who she loves and misses, but also like doesn't really understand who she's become. Uh, watching Sansa and Tyrion just talk to each other. I mean, if anything... I don't think a lot of the stuff got room to breathe. I would have loved like a longer conversation where those the yeah, last two characters. I think right there was a lot
0: of like, like we got to check a lot of boxes. Yeah, and it's like forward.
1: oh right, like these characters like used to be married and underwent something like really horrible, and she basically like left him to be <laughs> sentenced to death at a trial, <laughs> and like they're basically like oh that's all that oh that's in the past now. Yeah, um, but we had more of that than I thought we got in season seven which was just so transparently like we need to get everyone in the right position yeah and it's like okay well now that they're there we can actually have some of the stuff i've been missing that's that there were some of the plot holes that people have not been appreciating about the latter part sure. of the show like what people have been saying about stuff like john john just casually riding a dragon and danny not apparently thinking that's that I guess when we have those conversations, it always makes me think about how like that kind of stuff can seem like nitpicking and mm-hmm. a lot of other shows, but like that's really integral to why we love this story. Yeah. Like, I mean,
0: so much of it is based on this idea that every piece matters and that every, that, it's not just Chekhov's gun, it's Chekhov's everything. It's like every single gesture, every single single reaction. Honestly, at this point, every single utterance is getting going to get analyzed and I'm sure the people who make the show know that, you know, so they have to be aware of that.
1: Well, it's going to get analyzed but also it matters. The fact that Game of Thrones has defined itself by like not doing TV logic, mm-hmm. like characters until recently don't have plot armor. Um, the way I thought Zach Cram articulated it so well in that essay that we read on the site, like, consequences are driven or arise organically from actions. Mm -hmm. And right now, I think now that we're so close to the end game we can kind of see what's going to happen based on what needs to happen. So like what Andy was talking about on, on Monday was like, oh, well, we need Sam not to like Danny so that he'll tell John. So Danny needs to tell Sam that she killed his family. Right. The one thing I am encouraged by is like we're getting to the point where we're so close to the end game that like I genuinely don't know what's going to happen. Me neither,
0: actually. I it, Partially because <laughs> I've spent so much time watching this show and thinking about these characters and watching these actors that it's kind of hard for me to conceive of it without the dozen that are left you know what I mean and so it's like actually like it'll be interesting to see if something about this show is a conclusion that doesn't isn't tied to a death do you know what I mean because so much of the action has been pushed forward by characters ending their runs but like what could happen on this show that actually doesn't necessarily involve people getting their throats slit that would be satisfying I don't know
1: Yeah, like I kind of want them to stick to the idea. I wrote about this a little bit last season where it's like we're getting to the end where they're actually going to have to like show their cards a little bit Mm -hmm. and be like, what do we actually believe? And like, will we actually be able to reconcile our absolute belief in realpolitik and that idealism gets you killed with with the idea that like maybe an idealistic state can flourish given that it, provided that it has someone forceful enough like Danny to impose it. right? Like I think sort of the like, Dream ending is like Danny breaks the wheel unites the kingdoms has the iron throne but also she can't have kids so like she needs to come up with a more just and humane model of succession, succession plan yeah and i don't know if Not there's in really succession
0: hbo way yeah.
1: <laughs> well that's that's more like regular game of thrones but you know i think it will be really interesting to see if the show even makes an attempt to be like this is what we believe about governance and power or yeah. it's just going to be I don't know, maybe the White Walkers are just going to stroll into the throne room and that's just going to be it. <laughs> it's just going to be, <laughs> it's curtains for everyone. But
0: Let's keep changing the channels and talk about, um, let's talk about Bless This Mess next. I know that seems All like right. an abrupt left turn, but this kind of ties into the larger conversation Allison and I are having in the sense that this is a new ABC show. The American Broadcasting Corporation on like Channel 6 for a lot of people put up this show. It's Dax Shepard and Lake Bell. They star as two, I think, New Yorkers. Yes. New Yorkers who uh, really like off off-the-cuff, like, basically, like, moved to Nebraska to become farmers. Yeah, not just a
1: New Yorker, like, a therapist and a magazine writer. A music critic.
0: It was, like, a music journalist. Yeah, right. The big, big (laughs) moment for music journalists because Gina Rodriguez plays one in uh, Someone Great, too. Yes, as we all know, music (laughs) journalists all look exactly like Dax (laughs) Shepard. And Gina Rodriguez, that's right. But they moved to Nebraska to become farmers. There they find, like, an amazingly, like, quirky cast of characters played by the likes of Ed Begley and David Koechner. You know, and, Parham. yeah, London Parham. yeah, like so. It's, it's, it's just a fish out of water st- tale. It's written by Lake Bell and Liz Meriwether, and Liz Merriweather obviously brought us the New Girl. And what I thought about when I was watching, uh, uh, bless this mess, which I will say up top, I found delightful, was it could have been on anything. You could have told me it was on. Netflix, you could have told me it was on Hulu, you could have told me it was on FX, you could have told me it was on literally anything with a screen and I would have been like, that makes sense. There's nothing really about it that feels networky to me.
1: It has that, it actually has something that I have been noticing in a lot of network shows where it tries not to look networky. Yeah. Like, there's nothing in it. I'm sure this will probably change if it goes on and they have to, like, save money on sets. Yeah. But it doesn't look like, obviously, soundstage-y. It didn't look you know? like Nebraska
0: either. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know the, I don't
1: know if the scenes that they said were in New York were shot in New York no, there's a these, lot of fudging they going certainly on did not like that
0: I was like yeah I was like what is this Atlanta? Like, oh, yeah yeah.
1: but it's got that thing where it's like it's not trying to do anything revolutionary or fancy with its plotting which I do think is a little bit of a network tell sure it's little, yeah it's like we're just gonna make jokes about like ashwagandha and turmeric yeah. in front of these like dumbfounded farmers
0: and right there's let- hipster jokes there's agribusiness jokes <laughs> there's like it's it has the same kind of like rat a tat like constant patter that New Girl does. But it felt a little bit more restrained, I guess, and maybe like in service of like a like a v- admittedly modest story. But I, I enjoyed it.
1: I mean, I'm always on the market for like a good comfort network watch for a while. Brooklyn Nine-Nine still occupies that place yeah. for me, but Brooklyn Nine-Nine is also going into season seven. It's not going to be on forever. Sure. Superstore, same, heading into like the later part of its run. And it's always interesting to see like- Both of networks- those shows,
0: actually, I think candidates to be later period like office friends type just have Brooklyn Nine-Nine on. In oh, the that would be my
1: dream. Yeah. I hope that happens
0: for that I show. mean, but I think people do that on Hulu. Oh, I and mean, yeah. I've totally talked to people who are like, yeah, if I, if in the absence of anything else, I just like basically pick a random Brooklyn 99 to have on.
1: Totally. And it's it's always good to see networks still trying to do that at the same time that NBC is also doing like the good place. Yeah. Absolutely. Where like the good place is very obviously, as has been discussed in the show, a concession towards the realities of like most people watch this on streaming. We need to do something like a little more ambitious to compete in this marketplace right, right. now. And this is just like No, these are just, like, funny people you like in a very classical source of comedy. And we're just going to let it spin out from there.
0: What do you think about, like, a show like this? Like, do you think it just, like, kind of quietly, like, plays out the string over the course of the spring? Or do you think it has any chance of catching on?
1: I mean, I honestly think if it catches on, it's going to be because a streaming service picks it up. That's just, like, how stuff works now. Like, de facto. But, I mean... I could also see it, yeah, like just quietly making its way past the syndication mark. And I think it all depends on I've only seen the pilot and like pilots for comedies in particular are notoriously hard to judge because like what you want out of a sitcom isn't the premise. It's like the status quo Mm -hmm. that sets itself up within that premise. So like I like David Koechner and Lennon Parham, but like do they have the comic chemistry to form reliable side characters? I don't know yet. Yeah, right. I believe they could, but I think that's something that's like worth checking in on a little further down its run.
0: Really quickly, I just wanted to hit Eve really fast. I know yes. you and Kate are doing the recapables for it anyways so we people are. can hear all of your takes there. Second episode was really like quite involving. Do you feel like they are like in th- like second gear, like? kind of trying to like kind of pace it so that they don't basically like they came out of the fever pitch at the end of first the first season are they trying to figure out a way to slowly bring these two characters together again
1: yeah they definitely seem like they're searching for a status quo and they found that very quickly with eve I think like they basically had to undo a lot of what happened in the finale. It's like both Eve and Villanelle got fired, and Eve by the end of the first episode is back with MI6, and Villanelle by the end of the second episode is back in the twelfth. Yeah, yeah, and you know it's interesting to be like, okay, well we actually need to like tell a sustainable story. But I have thought it's interesting that I do think you can tell Phoebe Waller-Bridge is no longer at the reins. There's like a little bit of that, just like little surprise magic. I don't really know what's going to come out of this person's mouth thing that made it work so well in the first season. But it's also made me appreciate, this is what I wrote my review about. There's just like a lot of constituent parts of a show that is that are not the showrunner. Yeah. And like Jodie Comer is still doing just absolutely indescribable things with her face. And I still love watching this cast and the soundtrack is still irreverent and the location budget is still more than I could ever dream of. <laughs> absolutely, And it's fun to watch all of that work even as we don't have like a full picture of what the season is going to be yet. Yeah. Although I will say it's interesting that I just broke into my screeners for Fleabag season two, which is obviously Phoebe Waller Bridge. I feel like we're
0: gonna have to give you like a full clear out episode for that when when it finally comes. (laughs) Oh, it's coming!
1: I will I will like bust through the wall of the studio like the Kool Aid Man when it finally drops. But suffice it to say, I obviously really loved it, and Uh I highly recommend it when it comes out. But it, it, it was interesting to do that back to back with Killing Eve and be like, okay, like Killing Eve is a show that's trying to like figure out its like long life, and Fleabag is has the luxury of just being like, she said in the press, like, it's over. I don't want to do anymore. Yeah. This is just like my thing that is about me or like not about her, but is very centered on her voice and her performance. And... I don't know. Like I still am really enjoying this Eve season. We don't have the luxury of last year. They kind of knew what they had on their hands. So they gave like seven out of eight to critics like yeah. right up front. And so like I could go in being like, yeah, I know this amazing scene is episode, in episode five is coming. You know,
0: you know, take me to the hole is coming. Yes, yeah.
1: I know take me to the hole is coming. So like even if you don't, aren't like immediately grabbed by the pilot I can like tell you what to expect I've only seen through this Sunday's episode which I quite enjoyed and highly recommend and still recommend the show but it's like a fascinating exercise in like showrunners are given so much credit for whether shows succeed or fail now yeah and they've basically announced this model where, like, they're actually going to turn over showrunners every single season as, like, a built-in part of the plan instead of being like, oh, actually, Phoebe Waller-Bridge is too busy. We're going to hand this over to sure. someone else. right But they also are doing that clearly with an eye towards making this, like, a long-term sustainable thing. And it's,
0: like, a, a f- maybe not necessarily a fake anthology series or anything, but it'll have possibly a different feel. I mean, that would be, like, presumably that could happen.
1: Yes, there will be eras. Yes. And so just watching, like, in Fleabag, just an absolute example of TV tourism versus Killing Eve, which is kind of trying to like figure out how it's going to work, you know, in this, not vacuum, but like once part of its sales pitch has shifted a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I'm still like, I will watch, you know, Villanelle in weird pajamas, Snack <laughs> Kids Next
0: all day, but. So your description of Phoebe Waller-Bridge and especially her vision of Fleabag as being like, this is my fucking thing. I'm just making it. And it's not about like commoditizing it necessarily or franchising it or making it sustainable. Like this is the statement I want to make and I'm out. I feel like you could say something similar about the OA. Now, Allison and I could (laughs) probably have very different opinions about this show. Although I am not, there are some shows where I'm like, this is good and if you don't like it, you don't get it. There are some shows where I'm like, I like it. I don't know if it's good. And it's fine if you hate it. and then there's the OA <laughs> the OA would be a little bit more the latter than it would be the former for me um so this is the show obviously it's the second season somewhat I wouldn't say delayed like by any like inside information. it was just like the first season I can not I think was sixteen.
1: yeah, it was like December right yeah
0: and then so the most recent season came out like three weeks ago um I I don't want I think it's really difficult to talk about this show with either without either a, giving something away, or B, like, getting lost in plot description for 20 minutes. So I will say, Britt Marling, as she usually does in shows that she has a creative hand in or movies, plays a messianic figure who may or may not be an angel... Who is doing a lot? She's of- an angel. Yes, she, she
1: can't. Like that's the thing. Is it ended on this note of ambiguity in season one yes. that was like, oh, like did she maybe make this all up? And like to my mind, having found a lot of season one kind of a slog, that was sort of the most interesting part of the show for me, where it was like, oh, like what does it say that people would choose to believe in something like this? Right. Like those were the themes that I was attracted to, where it wasn't necessarily about her. It was about like how people felt about her. The problem is, <laughs> this show is not designed to address those questions. This show is designed to be about. About Brit Marling and her amazing adventures. Yeah. So basically, it starts in season two and it's like, no, actually, like, this is very real. She has literally jumped to a different dimension. She obviously has as powers. have other
0: people who may or may not be like celestial beings. I mean, a, yes. it is apparently like a thing you can do in the world of the show is jump your consciousness into another body. But it's like the, the rules of it are like way too like complicated to explain on a podcast. But suffice to say, <laughs> suffice to say, they. so here's the thing is like there is something about this show that is so committed to the bit that I almost find myself like enjoying it. I do feel like so much TV sometimes feels like, oh, it's kind of like too cool for itself or it's not cool enough for itself or so there's something going on with a lot of TV where it feels like the commitment level is like a little low, but like. There's something almost admirable about like the dedication and passion that they have for this like absolutely wackadoodle plot.
1: I certainly respect it, yeah. And I should also offer the offer the upfront caveat. Something that I understand about my relationship to this show is I am a deeply cynical person. Sure. I find earnestness a very hard sell, and this show is nothing if not incredibly earnest.
0: So you do not want to join my fan club of interdimensional time-traveling angels then that I I'm willing to (laughs) join the fan club of Kareem, the
1: new protagonist, because one thing I will give this show is it shifts gears for, so instead of being largely set in a Michigan suburb with occasional flashbacks to like a weird basement prison in North Dakota, Uh um, now it's a lot of this current season is set in this alternate universe, San Francisco, and a lot of the... burden of being the protagonist is shifted from OA slash Prairie slash whatever you want to call Brad Marley's character to this guy, Kareem, who's like a private eye. And -hmm. and, and he works, in my mind, because he's skeptical. And it's really good to have a skeptic asking questions driving a paranormal mystery. Yes. Like, I think he makes a lot better of an audience surrogate than this person. But I also find in a lot of the discourse about the OA, there's a lot of willingness to give the show credit for being weird. And I love weirds. My yeah. my three favorite shows of 2017 were The Young Pope, Twin Peaks, and The Leftovers. Like, give me wackadoo shit, yes, all day, every day. I just think like the specific presentation of this wackadoo shit is often (laughs) um, not (laughs) as well executed or a lot of it just comes off as like weird or surprising because like the writing is frankly like really clunky and like doesn't address certain things. Or there's just a lot of willingness of being like, oh, this is like a holy shit show and it does have a lot of holy shit moments. But like, I don't know if those are well integrated into the story, not even for reasons of like, No, this show is never going to be for me on certain levels but there are certain parts of it that very much are for me and just don't really to my mind work just because of the way they're executed
0: yeah i think i feel a little bit more warmly towards it if only because for one thing i find it to be such a unlike anything else now i think maybe that speaks to like my watching habits in general or something like that but for some reason I get swept up in this show in a way that is much more forgiving of its faults than I am of like shows that are like much more buttoned down that have faults do you know what I mean?
1: I will be very curious to hear how you receive the final uh, twist event of this season I'm sure it's been hyped for you I won't spoil it or anything but it does end with another kind of like shift in the status quo on par with what happens at the end of season one but yeah I do think it's, it's really interesting in that Like, we treat certain things, like, creator-driven or super weird and unusual, like, kind of assets instead of just descriptors. And I think the OA is a really interesting case of, like, I can understand what makes certain other people like it, but I just happen to think... Or, like, I can understand that it is remarkable that, you know, they were able to accomplish this and really hew to their own vision within the context of Netflix. But, like, I don't think that's necessarily a good in and of its own. It's like that could allow a lot of cool things to happen but in this specific example I don't think it works. It did
0: seem though anecdotally as somebody who sees you in the office though that I have seen you when you were like I am finishing something out of professional obligation or I am watching something because I feel like I need to know about it and then you were like almost elated by how nuts this show looks. There's a little
1: bit of like love to hate it, I think, going on with this show. I will also just say like, weirdly, it was an interesting contrast with Killing Eve this week, which is just so much of the show is hinged on like how charismatic you find Britt Marling. And like, I frankly find it interesting because it's a testament to how charismatic Britt Marling finds herself, and (laughs) I don't happen to agree with that self-evaluation, but it was really interesting. There's, like, I won't spoil the specifics of it, but in this week's episode of Killing Eve, like, a character is talking about Villanelle and is— In
0: episode three or— In episode three,
1: but, like, so no spoilers or anything, but just a character is talking about Villanelle and is talking about how enrapturing she is and how if she let her, she'll come in and take over your life, and that works within the context of the show because Jodie Comer actually is, like, that magnetic. Like, someone says that about Villanelle, and you're like, yeah, I've seen Villanelle. Like, that totally squares with my image of her. Whereas in the OA, you have, like, this whole troop of high school students and one adult that's, like, totally devoted to her. She goes into San Francisco and, like, immediately acquires new friends and allies who are willing to help her. And that just isn't really born out in like my attraction to her as a viewer, mm-hmm. which clearly like I am not you know the be all end all verdict in this there are people who truly love this show and i do think it's very interesting that this is very polarizing there are people who absolutely love it and there are people who absolutely hate it and there are not a lot of people as you mentioned who are just like "Eh, people are talking about it all i'll I'll just keep it going yeah yeah
0: all right well we'll definitely have you back on for fleabag i'll definitely have you back on when i finish the OA, so that you can be like oh my god "Uh, i told you uh allison thank you so much for joining us thanks for having me Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by Philo.tv. Philo has over 50 of your favorite channels like Science Channel, Hallmark, AMC, VH1, MTV, and more. Enjoy live and on-demand TV plus unlimited recording for only $20 a month with no contract needed. Philo is available on Roku, iOS, Fire TV, Android TV, and Apple TV. Start your free trial instantly with just a phone number. To start your free trial, visit Philo.tv slash The Watch. That's P-H-I-L-O dot. TV slash The Watch. If you go now, you'll get 15% off the first month. Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by Navy Federal. Navy Federal is proud to serve over 8 million members and is open to active duty military, the DOD veterans, and their family members. Receive a lifetime of membership benefits like a credit card APR average that is 4% lower than the industry's member-only exclusive rates and more. Visit NavyFederal.org slash watch for more information. Call 1-888-842-6328 or download the Navy Federal Credit Union app today. Message and data rates may apply. Visit NavyFederal.org for more information.